So I, I wanted to just paint the picture of today's market environment, if, if I can. And again, I think it may be a little bit of a sobering sort of picture, but if we look at capital market assumptions or capital market expectations, however you categorize it, if we look at the forward-looking returns, I think clearly they're going to be much more challenging in the future than they have been in the past. We, we've just come out of a historic long bull market run where we generated higher than expected returns. And, and I think the future is going to be a bit more challenging as we go forward. I think as we think back, you know, we're, we're certainly in an environment where yield has been a challenge over the last several years. I, I think at the peak, there was roughly 18 trillion in negative yielding assets globally. For the life of me, I still don't understand how negative yielding uh, assets work in, in real life, but that's in fact the environment we felt we found ourselves in. I think today it's roughly 300 billion, but it's still a challenging yield environment. Like it or not, we live in an environment where correlations have been elevated. The reality is the markets are very interconnected. We certainly felt that with COVID. We, we all experienced how everything moved in lockstep with one another with the uncertainty and the volatility that followed. We have the highest level of inflation since the 80s. And inflation is terribly, terribly corrosive. And where it really impacts, at least here in the States, is the consumers can't buy as much as they used to. And, and at a point in time, and I think we're reaching that point in time, it starts to change behavior. They're going to stop consuming things. People have to make choices. Do I feed my family or do I go to the movie? Um, so we're, we're dealing with a lot of that here, and there's a lot of tension around that. And I don't want to get into the politics of it. It's just kind of the reality of where we are. And, and certainly here, we're dealing with a changing Fed policy. The, the consensus is there will be a recession, probably not in 2022. But I think most people believe in 2023, we will have a recession of sorts. The question becomes, is it a deep and severe one? Or is it a long, extenuated one? And we really don't know. It, it depends on how successful the Fed is in landing this ship. And then, of course, we can't lose sight of the geopolitical risks, whether they're Russia, Iran, China, or whatever the next crisis is. And, and I always think that we, we need to anticipate that we will get shocks. And the value of the practitioner is to understand those shocks will come and think about how do we insulate the portfolio as best as we can for those impending shocks. The question becomes, you know, does the 60-40 portfolio really make sense? And, and again, rather than just focus on the 60 and the 40 as numbers, because you could argue, well, 60 became 70 because people actually ended up taking on more risk anyways. I think it's more important to focus on what is it that we wanted out of our 60 and what is it that we wanted out of our 40? So when we think back about when we started to use this as a market proxy, part of it was driven by, we looked at what institutions had done successfully. And many institutions benchmarked to either a 60-40 or a 70-30 or a 50-50 portfolio. And the expectation was all of the growth would come from their equity allocation and their fixed income allocation would provide the income and some ballast in the portfolio. So, so again, 6040 has been around for a long time, and a lot of people, including me, have been saying that, well, it's a little outdated and we need to evolve. So, so I will make the confession. In fact, during the bull run, that 6040 portfolio worked just fine. And much of it was driven by the fact that your equity allocation gave you an oversized return. So you got 13.7% returns uh, through 2020. Well, that, that's better than the historical average, which is roughly 10.2, 10.3, depending on the time period. And that 60-40 portfolio gave you a 9.9% return. I think most investors would be happy with that. So yes, maybe the 60-40 portfolio was fine up until the current environment. 
But the problem is if we all assume that those expected returns are true, and rather than getting the 10% that we've got over the long run, and we only get four or five or maybe six, the math just doesn't work. We're certainly not going to get the growth that we wanted out of our equity allocation. We're not going to get that uh, fixed income that we typically expect out of our portfolios, which forces us to find other alternatives. And unfortunately, what we find is with the correlations the way that they are, we're really not getting a whole lot of buffering of the increased volatility that we're anticipating. So I did want to go back and I could look at just about any, anyone's capital market assumptions. Here I'm looking at Franklin Templeton. And one of the things you'll notice is, yes, they're anticipating lower equity returns, higher standard deviation. The one thing I do want to remind everyone on the call, and maybe I'll just focus on uh, the U.S. equity markets and the emerging markets just as kind of a starting point here. Uh, we do need to take stock in the fact that if we look at the returns over the last 20 years, we were, need to remember in the U.S. that the U.S. markets were negative from 2000 to 2009. Here, at least, we refer to that as the lost decade. So although we got oversized returns coming out of the, uh, the recession, the global financial crisis, the reality is over the last 20 years, we've been around that 5% number. Emerging market, which has a higher expected return and higher standard deviation over the last 20 years, it's done well. It was the best performing asset class in the 2000 to 2009 period, but lagged a little bit in recent years. What I do want to draw your attention to, though, is private equity. And, and I, I'm a big believer that uh, it's not a mistake that there are alternatives in the title. I think we need to evolve beyond the traditional 60-40 portfolio. And in particular, I think we need to start to incorporate alternative investments wisely because I think they're pretty unique multifaceted tools that help us get us where we need to be. And I'll just point out here that the global private equity returns, the expected returns are anticipated to be higher. The long-term historical average is higher. And I'll share with you some data in just a little bit. They've historically delivered a pretty attractive illiquidity premium relative to public market equities. And I think that will persist in the future. If I look at correlations and diversification, and, and again, I'll, I'll make the concession that um, data can tell any story you want depending on the time period you look at. Uh, but when you have periods of shock, that's really when we need diversification the most. And in periods of shock, what we find is many of the investments move in lockstep with one another and the correlations approach one. I don't know that technically they ever reach exactly one. But I will point out that if we look across the board here, we look at things like real estate and commodities uh, and hedge fund strategies like macro and macro includes global macro and managed futures, you actually see a relatively low correlation relative to the equity markets. And I think those are important ingredients in an environment where we'll definitely see more shocks to the portfolios over time. So we need to think about intelligently allocating to these low correlating or non-correlating assets. I would point out, I don't have the data here, but if you go back to 2008, uh, global macro managed futures both delivered positive returns when the rest of the market was down pretty substantially. So if, if we think of that as the backdrop, and I, I don't think that anything there is terribly surprising to anyone in this call, I think practitioners need a better toolbox. I, I think we need to expand beyond the 60-40 portfolio. I'm not suggesting we throw out all the lessons that we've learned over time. I'm not suggesting we throw out the value of diversification, 
but I'm just suggesting those dull blunt, blunt instruments that we've used in the past stocks and bonds are inadequate to navigate the environment that we're living in today. And again, I'd argue that alternative investments are pretty unique and valuable tools. I think private equity can provide potential for higher returns. They've certainly done it over time. And I'll share with you some data on that. Private credit provides an alternative source of income, which is terribly important in this environment. And then real assets, I think often a misunderstood and misappreciated uh, investment provides both diversification and inflation hedging. Inflation is not something that we've had to deal with a, a, an awful lot over the last uh, couple decades here, but I think it's going to be front and center. It's certainly a phenomenon in the US and I think it's a global phenomenon. And we're going to have to identify tools that can help us in blunting the impact of that. And then of course, hedge funds, which are not all created equally, are multi-purpose tools that can help us navigate uh, the challenging environment that we're in today. So I wanna go relatively quickly through this. And I, I think as we often do, I like to look at what are the biggest and best do? What, what do institutions do? How do they allocate? Are there lessons that we can learn? Well, not surprisingly, big institutions have historically allocated pretty significant amounts to private equity, private debt, hedge funds, real estate, infrastructure. Of course, they have the wherewithal. I'm not suggesting that individual investors should allocate in the same way, but I do think it's instructive to, to look at an institution that doesn't have a lot of constraints, given the freedom, they have significant allocations to alternatives and pretty discrete allocations to private equity. If you look at sovereign wealth funds, endowments and foundation, all allocations north of 10%. And then if we look at uh, private pension plans and public pension plans where you're more concerned about generating income, not surprisingly, you have healthy allocations to real estate and hedge fund strategies. But I think it's important to take a look at it, not necessarily to follow it, but just to say, why are they accessing these? Well, historically, many of these great strategies and private markets in particular were the exclusive domain of institutions and family offices. And certainly in the States, one of the phenomena that we've seen quite a bit of over the last couple of years is a lot of new products coming to the market that are available to accredited investors, investors at lower dollar thresholds, so they can get exposure to these once exclusive asset classes. And then maybe equally as exciting is a lot of the best managers in the world are saying, I too will bring products to the wealth management market because I understand their valuable tools and I understand they can help individual investors. If I look at family offices, again, I'm seeing a similar sort of pattern here, pretty healthy allocations to private equity, private real estate, hedge funds, natural resources. So those who have the wherewithal are using these tools and they're using these tools in fairly significant ways. I wanted to share some data just looking at the long-term historical average. So I've looked at three, five, 10-year data and I'm looking at the, uh, I'm looking at the private equity index relative to the US and relative to the global markets. And across the board, what I see is a three to 600 basis point excess return, pretty, pretty substantial excess return relative to the public market equivalent. That illiquidity premium is a big part of the appeal of private equity. If I look at uh, private credit, I actually see the same sort of phenomena. I actually see pretty healthy allocations across the board. I mean, pretty significant excess return across the board with, again, that same 300 to 500 basis point illiquidity premium over time. Now, I I'm not suggesting it's always going to be at that level, 
but certainly if I can get rewarded for it and I have access to these investments where I haven't historically, I think they're valuable tools and I think behooves all of us to take a look at them and to consider how to use them best. I do think it's important though, as we think about access and private equity in particular, to take note of the fact that there's pretty large dispersions of return. If I look at the global equity markets, um, it doesn't matter that much. If, if I miss, if I don't pick the best manager and I pick the bottom manager, there's a 400 basis point dispersion of return from the top quartile to the bottom quartile. Obviously, I'd like to select the best manager, or even if I got middle of the pack, I'm probably going to be okay. But if you look at the dispersion of return of global private equity, it's 2,000 basis points. You can't afford to miss the mark. And when you think about private equity investing, you can't buy the market. The, the indexes that are out there are instructive, but if you have dispersions of return like this, you need to make sure you're identifying the best managers. It's even more of a difference if I look at venture. If I look at venture capital, it's 2,300 basis points from the top quartile to the bottom quartile. So again, there's a real premium in selecting the best manager. And, and then again, just to go back to you know, some of the coursework we all did in SEMA, I, I wanted to go back to the basic efficient frontier, which is the bottom line and the impact of adding a 20% allocation to private markets, what do I see? 163 basis point pickup by adding a 20% allocation of private markets broadly, which consists of 10% to private equity, 5% to private real estate, and 5% to private credit. And again, this is just an illustration. I'm not suggesting that everyone does that blindly with their portfolios, but I think that is the appeal of institutions and family offices to get these really great returns, uh, to have capital, that you're willing to commit for a long period of time and get rewarded for in the long run. So let me go relatively quickly to some of the asset allocation considerations so we can get into the Q&A. And, and again, I like to go back to kind of the basics here. And I think, you know, the way that you think about investing for clients, you know, works with private markets or alternatives broadly, uh, the same sort of way. What are we trying to solve for? Um, I'm certainly a big believer in trying to align everything with the goal of the client portfolio. And oftentimes there's multiple goals across client portfolios. Are we saving for retirement? Are we trying to preserve wealth? Are we trying to accumulate wealth? We need to understand that. And then we need to understand how to efficiently use these tools to help us get there. And again, if I think of the considerations, I think these are all things that we're probably thinking about every day Right? We need to generate returns in our portfolio. We need to provide income. We need to think about how we provide diversification. Maybe the new thing to solve for is inflation. How do we hedge the impact of inflation? And fortunately, these are valuable tools who can help us with all of those challenges. And the way I like to frame this, and, and I find this helpful for advisors, uh, but also find it very helpful for clients, is to start to frame it in a way that they think about things. So we typically think of growth coming from our equity allocation. And I agree, that's the place to start from it. But I would argue that you could also add equity hedged infrastructure and private equity. If we think about income, it's primarily gonna come from our fixed income allocation, uh, corporates, treasuries, high yields. But again, this is maybe where REITs and private credit come into play. If we think of defensive non-correlating, cash, commodities, macro, again, managed futures is a strategy that performed very well in the dramatic downturn of 2008. 
multi-strategy hedge funds. Um, and lastly, if I focus on inflation hedging, commodities, tips, real estate, infrastructure. So if we think about the due diligence process, well, we always think about people, philosophy, process, and performance, and performance should be last, right? But the rallies, I think there's some nuances when we think about alternatives. And I'd argue in private markets in particular, you really need the expertise. And you know, we certainly have the experience where a lot of people, um, when hedge funds were very popular, a lot of traditional money managers said, I too can run a hedge fund strategy. I'll just take my best ideas and my worst ideas and I'll flip them upside down. But what we found out is a lot of those managers had little experience or no experience in shorting and actually didn't deliver the same results over time. So I think the people philosophy process performance works, but let's make sure they have the experience running like-minded funds. Um, this isn't something you dabble with. If you're in the private equity space, you have a network, you can leverage that network, you have experience identifying companies. It's not like analyzing a balance sheet. It's actually thinking about, can I turn this company into uh, something that it isn't today, a viable business? There's also some structural things that we want to think about in evaluating uh, what is the type of structure. You know, is it a traditional QP fund, a feeder fund, registered fund? What's the qualifications for investors? Not all investors are eligible for all types of investments. Does the structure match the goal? And in particular, I would say liquidity is one of the primary things we want to think about. Private equity should be thought of as long-term investments. So you shouldn't invest in it today and think you want to get out of it tomorrow. You should think about it as a seven to 12-year investment. Uh, even though some of the newer structures offer better liquidity, I still think you think of it as a long-term investment. What's the underlying investments that we're thinking about? What's the liquidity? And what's the taxes and tax reporting? So as I close things up quickly here, I'm a believer that the naive 60-40 portfolio is likely going to fall short over the next several years. I think given the current market environment, practitioners need an expanded toolbox. We're not departing from everything that we've learned over time, but we need to expand the tools that we have at our disposal. And I think alternatives are valuable tools that can help us in find inc incremental returns, increase the income in our portfolios, reduce the volatility through diversification, and help hedge the impact of inflation. And I guess, you know, the questions that I have is that, um, you know, the, the reality is here in Australia, most of the sorts of alternatives you, you've discussed, like private equity, like VC, and those sorts of more exotic instruments, if we call them that, really aren't available to retail investors. Most of them are at wholesale vehicles only. And they do, as you say, have those very long lockups, lock which really don't suit um, a lot of retail investors or advisors here in Australia. So I, I wonder what your advice is around those liquidity mismatches. Yeah, and, and part of the reason I, I thought we would start the discussion is I, I know certainly in, in the States, um, that was certainly the environment that we were in You know, five years ago. It was nice to have the discussion about private equity, but there are very few options available. And we've seen incredible growth over the last several years in new structures that allow that. And my understanding is some of those structures are being thought more globally. So again, as you start to see success and more of these products come to the market, they don't encumber the manager and their ability to manage money. And they do have the appeal of the, the private wealth audience, the wealth advisor or retail audience, however you want to define it. 
that all of a sudden, I, I think you'll start to see more products finding their way to Australia. Uh, there are different regulatory regimes, and I'm very sensitive to that. That's why I didn't want to get into too much of the product discussion here, because I know you may not have those products available yet. But I, I suspect you're going to start to see a lot more of these things coming your way. Let's hope so. Um, I guess one of the other things, particularly about hedge funds, and you didn't really talk a lot about hedge funds, but what we seem to see is we do get some hedge funds that are available here for, for retail advisors and retail investors on platform, but they're, they're very expensive. And I usually feel like the ones that make it through to that level um, are usually the ones that can't be filled by institutional investors. So I wonder what your thoughts are as to the sorts of products that actually end up being available to retail investors. Yeah, I think hedge, I agree with you. I think hedge funds have had a very difficult time. And, and certainly here in the States, I, I think a lot of the a lot of the SEMA advisors here in America have been turned off a little bit because one, the strategies haven't really played out. Um, I, I'd make a couple points. And one is I think there's often a mismatch in expectation when it comes to hedge funds. And the thing that I often hear from advisors and clients is, well, how can my hedge fund didn't outperform the market? Most of them are not designed to outperform the market in a bull market. And, and I think we need to kind of take a step back and think about what specifically are the hedge funds trying to solve for? So equity hedge and event driven are more growth oriented. They're equity beta strategies. Uh, they're going to dampen the volatility a little bit, but you're getting a lot of equity beta in your portfolio. Relative value, I'd argue, is, is designed to mute the returns, provide more steady eddy returns over time. But I'd argue, you know, strategies like macro really make a lot of sense in an environment like this because they can be a bit more nimble and they can take advantage of market mispricings and all of that. So I suspect that global macro managed futures will have a pretty good time in a volatile environment that we're in now. But I think generally, you know, get, getting to your, your comment, I, I think that what we have found is a lot of the hedge fund assets chase all the way up and they, you know, it's, it's been challenging. I, I think that big institutions are still allocating, but individual investors, they've slowed that pace. I, I wrote a book and um, one of the things, you know, I, I think it's always good if you're writing a book, you have to have something provocative to say. I'm not sure it's too provocative, but I certainly have predicted that I think hedge funds to compete will need to lower their fees and increase their transparency because right now they're 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 struggling right they're not they're not gaining market share uh, a lot of investors have soured on them because of the fee structure a lot of people feel like you're not getting access to the best of the best right the best ones are only available to institutions uh, I think some hedge funds are understanding that and they're trying to bring products to the wealth management market but I think a lot of them are having a tough time and you know they're they're suffering, they're closing strategies or they're uh, having key people walk across the street and start their own shop. Yeah. Okay. With, with private equity and, and VC and those sort of more locked up structures, I mean, I wonder if in reality that the return stream actually is much more like equity, that the, the, the real positive is the fact that they don't mark to market and how in reality, again, um, is the performance quite different if it were mark to market? Are we just sort of playing on, I guess, a sort of structural issue here in terms of the way that they're actually valued? So I think there's two primary questions in there, if you don't mind me taking them separately. Yep. One is, um, 
and this is again, I, I would draw the comparison to we had hedge funds, and then after 2008, the global financial crisis, we had liquid alternatives. And people thought, okay, well, I'm going to trade off liquidity and I'm going to give you the liquid version of the hedge fund strategy. And what you found is there were essentially watered down versions, right? To meet the liquidity requirements, they were watered down and hence didn't deliver the same results. Mm. And I think a lot of people have that in the back of their minds. I certainly do. Uh, I think the registered fund structure, and, and in the States, those are interval funds and tender offer funds. And I suspect that whatever finds its way to Australia will be similarly structured, is a bit of a hybrid strategy. And what they do is, although there's quarterly redemptions, they don't have the same sort of liquidity stream. They're not required to meet all redemptions that come in the door. And by having it structured as a long-term vehicle, what you're starting to find is the Blackstones and the Black Rocks and the KKRs and the Hamilton Lanes are saying, okay, now I'm willing to play in that game. I wouldn't do it before in the liquid version because you would force me to do something out of character and consequently I wouldn't deliver the same results. So the registered fund structure I think is appealing because it is hybrid in nature. Now, the other part of that though is um, I don't know that I would expect the same return of the registered fund as I would the QP, the long-term lockup because there is an illiquidity premium for locking up capital and thinking seven years as opposed to thinking redemption quarter to quarter. The other important component is a lot of people are leery of uh, private equity and the volatility because it's not mark to mark. I think the way that I like to look at that data is de-smoothing it. So you adjust for the fact that it doesn't, which amps up the volatility. So the volatility is much higher than what is stated.